Welcome to JAD Podcast. I'm Ben Stoff, Associate Professor of Dermatology at Emory University, and I am joined today by colleague and friend Howie Young, Assistant Professor of Dermatology also at Emory University. Dr. Young is the lead author on a new CME review article entitled Dermatologic Care for Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Persons, Part 1, Terminology, Demographics, Health Disparities, and Approaches to Care. Dr. Young, thank you very much for joining us on JAD Podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation, Ben. So, uh, how, uh, I know this is a topic that you're very familiar with, that you've become a strong advocate and scholar about, but for our listeners, in what ways has LGBT health really become a priority for health organizations in general, and then for organizations in dermatology specifically? In, in other words, why should this be an important population to prioritize for these organizations? That's a great question. Um, I think that LGBT health, or lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender health is important both for public health as well as for clinical dermatologists. Um, from a broad perspective of kind of public health, the Institute of Medicine in 2011 published a landmark report that showed how incredibly little we know about the health of LGBT folks, which consists of more than 10 million U.S. adults. Um, in fact, that's 4% of the U.S. adult population um, that identified as LGBT in 2016. And that number is increasing. Um, more than 8 million lesbian, gay, or bisexual persons, and more than 1.4 million transgender people. And in addition to all of that, um, more than 19 million adults have reported ever engaging in same-sex sexual behavior, and even though some of them may not identify as part of the LGBT community. So that's a lot of people. In addition, the visibility of LGBT people are also increasing in popular media, in sports, in politics, as well as in medicine. And so I think this is really important for a lot of people in our country. In fact, the NIH has now recognized that sexual and gender minorities, which include LGBT folks, as a health disparity population. Um, and numerous national organizations, including the Association for American Medical Colleges, um, American College of Physicians, and the Joint Commission have also recognized the need to learn more about the health of LGBT folks. Even in this past week, the American Academy of Dermatology has approved a position statement supporting research policy and initiatives to advance sexual and gender minority health in dermatology. So this is really important on a national level. But why should we care? Um, I think this topic is very important for clinical dermatologists because everyone will see LGBT patients whether you realize it or not. Um, particularly for many LGBT folks who might have experienced stigma or discrimination in healthcare, they might not be very comfortable in telling you that they belong in the LGBT community. So it's really important to, for us to find out and to know. Um, it's important for us to target our management differently for different patients so that we provide the highest quality care we can. Some people would say it doesn't matter because I treat everyone equally, but we need to target um, your management differently for different patients for us to provide the highest quality care. For example, I'm not a rheumatologist and I don't ask all my patients about joint pain, but if I see a patient with psoriasis, I'm going to talk to them about um, psoriatic arthritis and talk about cardiovascular risk. Similarly, if I diagnose a young gay man with secondary syphilis, 
I would also talk to them about HIV screening as well as refer them for pre-exposure prophylaxis to prevent HIV infection. So dermatologists really have a responsibility to take the best care of our LGBT patients just like every other patient. I think that's a, a really well thought out answer. I think we are seeing that many LGBT patients have really not been treated equally. I think that's part of the reason authoritative bodies in medicine, including the Institute of Medicine and other national organizations and dermatological organizations, have begun to assign priority to this population of patients. And also, just to put things in context, I mean, thinking about four to five percent of the population, that's also a sort of figure we hear thrown around about psoriasis and think about the priority we place on that disease. Um, it's probably reasonable that we think about similar kinds of efforts toward a, a similarly representative population of LGBT patients. And one of the things that I think challenges providers in the care for LGBT patients is terminology. This seems to be very critically important to appropriate care for these patients, but there's a lot of confusion around these terms. How? So I'm just going to throw out a couple of terms and want you to help our listeners create a working definition for them. So let's start with the basics, sex, sexual orientation, and sexual behavior. Yeah, I, I think I totally agree with you. Many people are very intimidated by these terms, and people get really hung up on the alphabet soup and kind of think about what can I say, what shouldn't I say, what do I mean, what do you mean by all these terms. And so before we kind of go into the specific about what those words mean, it's kind of important to know um, that these terms have been changing over time, and um, not everybody agrees about these words, not even among communities who identify as LGBT. Um, but um, to answer your question, um, sex usually, when we refer to sex, refers to biology. So most people are assigned a sex at birth, usually based on their external genitalia when you're a baby. So um, as everyone learned in medical school, though, uh, sex is a little bit more complicated than whether you have male or female external genitalia at birth. And there are many people with intersex conditions, uh, what's known as differences in sex development. For example, most people don't check their chromosomes, but we know that beyond XX and XY, for example, people with Klinefelter syndrome have XXY. People with 5-alpha reductase deficiency have XY chromosome, male chromosomes, but they have female-appearing genitalia at birth. And that's just biology. So mm -hmm. sex usually refers to biology. Sexual orientation is how someone characterizes their attraction to someone else, which, um, for example, someone who is a man who is attracted to other men might consider themselves gay. Um, but not everyone does so. And it's important to differentiate that from sexual behavior. For example, a young woman who might be attracted to only other women and identifies as gay, but she's never had sex with other women. So you might have an emotional attraction without sexual behavior. Hmm. A gay man might only be attracted to men, uh, even though he might not be currently sexually active. So those things are uh, people are complex and multifaceted, and it's really important to um, distinguish those two um, concepts. Yeah, very important. I also like the, how you highlight that many of these definitions are not stagnant. They're in flux and will change over time. What about uh, gender identity and gender expression? Yeah, those can be a little confusing. So gender identity refers to someone's 
sense of being a man or a woman or someone else. For example, for me, my birth certificate says that I was a baby boy when I was born, according to my parents and my doctors who checked downstairs when I was born. <laughs> um, then I've grown to identify also as a man. And so my sex assigned at birth was male, and my current gender identity are the same. And I identify as a cisgender or cis man. For someone who is assigned, for example, female at birth and self-identifies as a man, he would be a transgender man or trans man. Someone who was assigned male at birth and now self-identifies as a woman would be a trans woman. And someone might not identify as either male or female, but identify as something else, like non-binary. It's all about how someone identifies themselves. I think this feeds well into the idea of gender dysphoria, a condition that many patients in the LGBT community suffer from. Describe that a bit more for our listeners. Gender dysphoria refers to the distress from this difference between someone's sex assigned at birth and their gender identity. And so some transgender people who uh, experience a lot of gender dysphoria might go through uh, medical or surgical transitioning, or also known as gender affirmation, so that they recognize, accept, and express a gender that is more congruent with their gender identity. And that can involve not only medical or surgical treatments, sometimes that involve behavioral changes, social changes, and legal changes. Right, Alan. I think it's important to highlight, as you have mentioned to me before, that gender dysphoria can be very severe. It is a condition from which many patients suffer in silence, and it is often the rationale for advocating for these patients to have certain interventions done for gender affirmation, particularly from the perspective of insurance coverage. Absolutely. I think a lot of people uh, underestimate the impact of gender dysphoria. In fact, transgender persons who suffer gender dysphoria have suffer significantly in their mental health because of this gender dysphoria. For example, 41% of transgender persons have attempted suicide um, because of uh, mental health issues, uh, some of which is associated with gender dysphoria. So it's really important for us to recognize the medical necessity of gender-affirming treatment and for dermatologists to take an active part in that. I think that's a really nice segue, Hala, into thinking more about the way in which the LGBT population has really been marginalized in our healthcare system and some of the implications for that population. You highlighted mental health. Talk about some other things, for example, substance abuse, disability and chronic disease, et cetera. Absolutely. LGBT populations have experienced higher rates of tobacco use, alcohol use, and other substance use, as well as lots of uh, mental health comorbidities such as depression, anxiety, and suicidality as compared with um, heterosexual cisgender populations. Um, in addition, uh, LGBT persons are more likely to rate their general health as poor and have uh, more chronic health conditions compared to uh, heterosexual cisgender populations. I think many of us know that gay and bisexual men have suffered significantly and, uh, from HIV infection. In fact, um, two-thirds of new HIV infection in the United States uh, are now occurring in men who have sex with men. 
women who have sex with women uh, are more likely to uh, be obese or overweight and less likely to receive cancer preventive services such as um, mammography and cervical cancer screening. And we talked a little bit about um, the mental health burden that transgender folks suffer from. It's also really important to know that LGBT folks are not victims. There's a lot of resilience in the LGBT community, but it's really important for us to also recognize these health disparities so that we can take the best care of LGBT folks. Yeah, I think there have been a number of really powerful narrative articles in the popular press about frank discrimination faced by LGBT patients in healthcare environments. I think this also is something that seems to contribute to delays in seeking care and the kind of marginalization many of these patients experience. How it, something I think you've alluded to, but maybe we can talk about a little bit more formally, is this notion of the minority stress model. What is that? The minority stress model proposes that the experience of prejudice and stigma directed towards LGBT folks can generate unique and chronic social stressors, and these stressors causes a higher likelihood for LGBT folks to have uh, higher risk behaviors and adverse mental and physical health outcomes. For example, someone who experiences higher level of internalized homophobia or higher uh, social discrimination um, or experiences of rejection may have a higher likelihood of experiencing substance use and sexual risk behaviors that also lead to different physical and mental health outcomes that then in turn lead to some of the health disparities that we are seeing. In some ways, it's really a vicious cycle. I mean, we see patients who experience discrimination even in a healthcare setting, which then seems to feed into potentially higher risk behaviors and greater need for healthcare and then potentially more discrimination and so on and so forth. And you can see really where the disparities rise. Let's move on now, Howard, just to some more practical recommendations for our listeners in terms of how to create a really welcoming care environment for LGBT patients. Maybe we'll start with terminology, again, referring to patients. This is something that I think many of our listeners may find slightly intimidating or uncertain. So let's just start with patient-preferred terminology. Yeah, I think it's a question that a lot of people ask, how do I ask if someone is LGBT? And I think it's totally our job to make it easy for people to tell us. One analogy I like to make is um, how do you ask someone how old they are? We all know that age is an important demographic variable. We also realize that it's really awkward when you meet someone for the first time and ask, hey, how old are you? And people might be uncomfortable answering that question, and so they might massage their answers. So every doctor's office will then ask for date of birth, so to normalize disclosure of age. And so multiple studies have shown that routine collection of sexual orientation and gender identity on your intake form is actually really highly acceptable and it's easier for people to answer those questions as compared to telling you how much money they make. And so I think the first thing for dermatologists to do is to make it easy and normalize this disclosure of sexual orientation and gender identity. Make it easy for people to uh, disclose that to you. Um, but if your practice does not routinely just ask these information on your intake, which I encourage you to do so, um, there are definitely ways to use um, to ask questions 
um, to make people comfortable in terms of disclosing sexual orientation and gender identity to you. And the first step one has to take is just to take the first step and ask. For example, you can say, I would like to be respectful. How would you like to be addressed? What pronouns do you want us to use? And that just provide the first step for people to feel comfortable in terms of um, using the terminologies that they want you to use. The important point is for the patient to tell you what pronouns, what words, what names they want you to use. And I think you could see how, how and you bring up a great point here, which is how we can really make system changes to enable some of this questioning and querying in a way that's more comfortable for patients. So I think your suggestion of making it part of the intake form removes some of that stigma from a direct conversation. It didn't mean that one would not have to engage in it periodically. That's something that is a sort of system level change that I think would be very practical for dermatologists with a busy practice to do. What about taking a sexual history? This is something that dermatologists may do on some occasions and not on others. You highlight really the importance of doing this and ways of doing it effectively with this population. Can you give us some of the, the pearls from that discussion in the paper? Yeah, absolutely. I think normalization is really key here. Um, when you ask for sexual history, you have to realize that not everyone expects you asking about sexual history. Uh, patients may not come into a dermatologist's office for a rash and realize that you have syphilis on your differential and therefore you are asking for a reason. So it's really important to explain and normalize your um, inquiry. So what I would say is every time I've seen this rash, I always have a couple of questions that I would like to ask. Um, and then you can start with your usual questions in terms of um, uh, sexual activities, um, whether they have sex with men or women or both, and what kind of sex they have. And it can be fairly open-ended and let the patient answer those questions. And once you've uh, uh, developed more rapport, you can kind of um, continue the line of inquiry. But I think the first step is being not afraid to ask and normalize the situation. Right. And I think there are other sorts of pearls in your paper that are really helpful to create a kind of welcoming environment for LGBT patients. Give us maybe a couple of examples of that as well as we close. Um, for example, if a patient of mine has another person that they brought into the room with them, yeah. I think it's really important for us to ask, who did you bring with you? And not assume that, is that your wife or is that your boyfriend? I think it's really important to understand that LGBT folks may have a support system that is sometimes different. For example, you might not necessarily bring a family member with you if your family has not supported you throughout your life, but your support system really consists of your friend or your partner. And so it's really important to clarify um, who that person might be who uh, might be very important in terms of medical decision-making for the patient. Um, so I think they're uh, respecting um, uh, different types of social support is really important. The second thing is um, a lot of these inquiries are really facilitated by just a welcoming physical environment. For example, if I walked into a clinic and I don't know that is LGBT friendly, I might not be, feel comfortable answering all these questions. 
But if I walked into the room and I see, you know, um, non-discrimination policies or inclusive images, uh, I'm not saying that every clinic needs to have rainbows everywhere, but I'm <laughs> saying that it's important for LGBT folks to even understand and to notice some of these cues that might not be verbal, but would create an environment for them to talk to you about not only their sexual health, but their physical health problems. Before we conclude, I just want to highlight one thing. I just want to highlight that the American Academy of Dermatology has a LGBT and sexual gender minority health expert resource group, which is a very fun group of people who are very passionate about advancing LGBT health. And listeners are more than welcome to address any questions and share any tips or even join the LGBT SGM expert resource group. Um, and I really um, thank your invitation in, uh, to talk on this podcast. Great, Alan. Again, seemingly simple sorts of steps can go a long way. Um, toward making LGBT patients feel much more comfortable. I think that's really captured well in the interview and also in the paper. So just to sort of summarize a few things that I think we learned in this interview. Number one, LGBT population is big. It's a big population in the United States. It is growing. There have been really authoritative bodies in medicine which have recognized the importance of LGBT health and unique needs of LGBT people particularly Institute of Medicine, also our own organization, AAD, and have talked about policy priorities that should be made for these patients in order to close disparities that exist. And we're seeing a lot of disparities here. We're seeing disparities related to substance abuse and mental health, disability and chronic disease, certainly chronic infections like HIV, gaps in insurance coverage, delays in seeking care and discrimination actually in healthcare environments, which is sad to think about. We also are seeing really um, importance placed upon terminology and how this terminology is evolving over time. And maybe if we're having this conversation a couple years from now, it may change, but it's important to have some baseline understanding of what is meant by important terminology to LGBT patients. We talked a bit about the minority stress model, how it becomes this vicious cycle of exposure discrimination and then um, facilitating more high risk behavior and then the need for greater health care and then um, the inevitable delays that come with that. And then some really basic, honestly, um, recommendations for dermatologists just in their practices to help facilitate care of transgender, um, lesbian, gay, bisexual patients, um, including use of patient-preferred terminology, um, elicitation of basic sexual histories, creating a generally welcoming environment, really suspending our assumptions. This is one of the things that this population of patients really challenges us to do in really important ways. So want to thank Dr. Young um, for his scholarship and leadership and advocacy um, related to this group of patients, and also thanks to our listeners for tuning into JAD Podcasts.